Hi there, I'm Lucas. And I'm Jesse. And welcome to the second ever episode of Double Blind. This is the podcast where every week we discuss two scientific news stories by going through all of the details, breaking down the methods, and discussing the potential implications. We're trying to report these to you without the hype that you get from the mass media. Today on the show, we have the end of a long drought of antibiotic discoveries and perfection at the poker table. So without further ado, let's get started. So our headline here is, first new antibiotic in 30 years discovered in major breakthrough. Wow. Yeah. That sounds spectacular. Yeah. And also, that's quite a long time since an antibiotic was discovered. Yeah. Why has it been so long? Well, we'll get into that in a sec. So to start off, researchers at the Northeastern University in Boston discovered this new antibiotic, and it's called Tyxobactin. Tyxobactin? Tyxobactin. Tyxobactin. Yeah. And it's produced by a bacteria called E. Terae. So not only that, but they've discovered a whole new class of antibiotics, which they call um, oxidiazoles. Oxidiazoles? So a bunch of big words being thrown around here. Absolutely. So Tyxobactin is especially effective against uh, a couple commonly known conditions. Tuberculosis. Oh, wow. That's an important one. C. difficile. Oh. Yeah. And Staphylococcus aureus, which is also known as a staph infection. So these are real diseases that we actually need to fight. These are real serious diseases. Aren't, aren't some of these diseases which people have recently been concerned about in terms of developing resistance to antibiotics? Yeah, both Staph and C. difficile have both been turning up a lot in hospitals in very antibiotic-resistant strains. So they're very deadly and very hard to treat. But the most important bacteria that this new antibiotic is effective against is a strain of Staphylococcus known as MRSA or methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. Okay, so this is one of those antibiotic-resistant ones? Exactly. So that MRSA, those are resistant to any of the beta-lactam antibiotics, which it turns out include all of the ones that end in psyllin and sporin. Oh, that's a lot of them. That is most of them, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Do a little history lesson here. Penicillin was the first antibiotic. Alexander Fleming, right? Exactly. Alexander Fleming in 1920. That was a long time ago. He discovered it in mold. Yeah, moldy bread, wasn't it? Yep, exactly. And since then, we've discovered a lot more beta-lactam antibiotics and a couple other classes of them as well. And they all kill bacteria in different ways. The beta-lactam antibiotics, so penicillin and some of those other ones we mentioned, those kill bacteria by inhibiting cell wall biosynthesis. Okay, so it prevents the bacteria from building walls to their cells? Well, yeah, you can imagine when you've got a cell, a sort of semispherical cell, when it divides in mitosis to produce two of them, it creates a cell wall around both of them. So you have two enclosed cell walls. So you have two enclosed new organisms. What these beta-lactam antibiotics do is prevent that new cell wall from being generated. So when the bacterium cell divides, instead of forming a strong cell wall, it becomes a fragile spheroplast, which is just this sort of membranous cell, which has very little integrity and it has no protection. Okay. Yeah, and that, that is how penicillin works. These resistant strains of bacteria have evolved a way to counteract these, this group of atoms that prevents the cell wall from forming. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it basically negates the effectiveness of penicillin and other drugs. Okay. So this tyxobactin is incredibly effective at doing exactly the same thing, but through a slightly different method. So it also inhibits cell wall production, but it does it in a different way. And it actually has a couple other forms of attack. In fact, it has so many that the scientists who discovered this think that there will not be bacteria that are resistant to it for up to 30 years. Okay. Yeah. Now, that doesn't sound like a long time to me. doesn't sound like a long time, but at the rate that people are abusing antibiotics, that's 
you know, 30 years of wiggle room is pretty significant. Right. Back to the headline, it said that this was the first new antibiotic in 30 years. Why haven't we discovered more? That's not quite true, first off. Okay. It's actually the first new class of antibiotic discovered in 28 years. There was a new antibiotic that was discovered in the late 80s, which was the most recent one before this. But it's a pretty significant discovery because it can effectively treat really resistant infections. Right. Um, The scientists that did this actually discovered 25 new antimicrobial compounds. This tyxobactin was just the most significant of them. Right. So I was trying to find out why it's been so long since we have discovered a new antibiotic. Yeah, that's the question that's really bugging me at the moment. It turns out that it's because we're actually only able to grow 1% of microbes that we find in soil in a lab setting. 1%? Yeah. 99% of them will die when we initially try to grow them. I had no idea. Yeah. So, like, that's pretty brutal odds that we can find the one we need within 1% of what we're looking at. Mm -hmm. The real breakthrough in this study almost isn't the discovery of this new antibiotic. It's the method that the scientists developed, which took over 10 years of actually cultivating a much larger percentage of microbes that they find in the soil. They developed something called an eye chip, which I think is a stupid name, and I thought we were over adding an eye to the beginning of everything. (laughs) (laughs) But it's basically a little chip that has hundreds of small holes in it. So researchers will take a sample of soil, and they'll dilute it quite a bit. They'll pour it on this chip, and because of the dilution, the idea is that there's only one microbe in each hole. Whoa, those are some small holes. Those are some small holes and pretty heavy dilution. Right. So then what they do is they put a membrane on either side of this chip. So the bacteria or whatever happens to be in those holes is enclosed inside. Yeah. And then they put it back in the soil sample so it can grow naturally. Okay. The idea being that all of these microbes are getting all the same nutrients and environment that they would otherwise be getting in the soil. They're just confined within this hole in a chip. Exactly. So they're confined and are multiplying within these holes. So these microbes are able to grow essentially in their natural environment while still being trapped so they can later be extracted. Okay. So then when these researchers took those microbes out of the chip and started cultivating them in the lab Mm -hmm. after they'd been able to multiply a bit, 50% of the bacteria that they captured in the eye chip Mm -hmm. survived. Okay. And of those around a third of them could be transferred to lab conditions. Wait, so they could continue growing them in the lab after they'd started growing them in this chip? Exactly. Wow. So that, that That's the whole point of this thing, is that they can get them to a mass where they're able to grow them in the lab. So this is just a transport mechanism from the natural environment to the experimental one. Yeah, exactly. Okay. To overcome this inability for us to previously be able to actually get access to these in a lab setting to research them. Right. Apparently we're about two years away from clinical trials uh, in humans for this antibiotic. Mm -hmm. And then after that point, it'll take about three years of trials before we'd see it hit shelves. But that's uh, pretty significant. Five years isn't bad. Five years is not bad at all. And arguably more important than the discovery of the antibiotic itself is the fact that this new method will probably yield way more discoveries of microorganisms that can produce antibiotics and other compounds. Right. In your future. I'm, I'm sure a race is on by researchers to find more of these or maybe by drug companies to market more of these. Yeah, exactly. That's what we're looking at with antibiotics. Awesome. That's fascinating. Game theorists have solved poker was the headline across many uh, newspapers and websites in the last couple weeks. Okay. Which is splashy that's awesome that sort of implies that we've figured out a foolproof way to play poker right and 
in a way we have, but I'm not sure if it'll transfer to your weekly game on Friday nights okay. uh, anytime soon. So I'm looking forward to hearing about this because poker, of course, has what we like to think of as a pretty strong human element of bluffing and whatnot. Exactly. So I'm curious how a computer can solve it the way it could chess or checkers. So what does is, what is solved poker mean? Mm-hmm. Essentially what happened was scientists from the University of Alberta in Edmonton have created an algorithm that essentially can play what is as close as possible to a perfect game of poker. Okay. And in, in the paper, they use the term weekly solved. As best I could tell, what they mean by that is that for every possible position in the game, this computer has determined the optimal strategy that should be taken. Okay. Now, that might sound rather simple because whenever we watch, you know, uh, World Poker Tour or anything like that on TV, you see at the side of the screen, it always has those percentages. Yeah. Which, ha- which is the probability of a player winning. Okay, so what have they done that's different from that? Well, it's fundamentally different because in this case, the computer has the perspective of a player. Poker is what's called an imperfect information game. That is that not all information is known by every player. There's hidden cards. Of course, unlike something like chess where you can see all of the pieces all the time. Precisely. One of the co-authors of this study in uh, 2007 was involved in a team which solved checkers, (laughs) which they considered to be quite a bit easier. I think I remember that. Yeah. So essentially in this paper, what they did is they solved what's known as heads up limit hold'em. So this isn't quite the poker you see on TV. Heads up means there's only two players playing. Okay. And limit means that bets occur in fixed increments, and there are a fixed number of raises in each game. I can already see the variable minimizing going on. It, it's variable minimizing, <laughs> but you know the amazing thing? Guess how many possible scenarios there are in that game. With 52 cards and two players, just take a wild guess at how many scenarios you could have. Oh, I can't even begin. I've, it's been so long since I took probabilities. Or order of magnitude. How many zeros would there be in that number? <sighs> Hundred zeros. 100 zeros. Uh, it's actually it's actually less than 100 <laughs> okay. zeros. It's, That's why you don't ask me this stuff. <laughs> I know. It's a, you, you way overestimated that. Okay. With, with this simpler version of poker, there are still 3 times 10 to the 17 possible scenarios okay, this computer has to consider. That's a lot. That's 3 followed by 17 zeros. So how'd they do it? And this, this is the part of the study I love because it really is fundamentally quite a simple method and quite a cool method. They started with a computer program that knew the rules of poker and nothing else. Okay. They didn't teach it anything else. So when it started, by only knowing the rules, it played randomly. Okay. And it lost a lot of games. It just kept playing and kept losing and winning. But every time it lost, it assigned a regret value, (laughs) as they call it. Okay, cool. Yeah, so if it lost more, this value would be higher. And the computer would know more to not do something like that again. Oh, interesting. They've known about this sort of method for quite some time now, since the mid-90s. The reason this hasn't happened until now was actually the computer innovation side of this. Because the computer generated 262 terabytes of data. Holy cow. Which it needs to routinely access as it keeps playing. (laughs) And that is not a small amount of data. That That is insane. So it must get slower and slower as it builds up data too. Yeah. So one of the greatest innovations which made this study possible is they managed to compress that to 11 terabytes. Whew. It's still a lot. <laughs> so starting this randomly playing computer program, it took 68.5 days to run until they believed it became the perfect poker player. 
So in other words, it wasn't adding any more regrets, basically. Yeah, not significantly. Okay. This is one of those sort of things where you're going to get infinitely close to perfection, but you're never going to quite reach it. Totally. That makes sense. Out of all these iterations, some interesting things happened. First of all, which I find fascinating, is the computer learned to bluff. (laughs) On its own, it learned that bluffing was part of this game and a beneficial part of this game. That is interesting. So how did that actually look? What does a computer bluffing look like? A computer bluffing looks like it can observe the cards which are on the table, the communal cards in the game, Mm -hmm. and it can know what would convince the opposite player that it might have a good hand relative to those communal cards. Okay, and it learned that entirely from just the rules. Yes, entirely from the rules and playing randomly. That is amazing. A couple other things that came out of it. There's a term in poker called limping. Yeah. This is calling the first action instead of raising. Mm -hmm. And it learned that that's very, very rarely beneficial. It also learned that the dealer position in poker, which, you know, rotates through the Mm -hmm. game, the dealer has a significant advantage to anyone else as they're the one who makes the first action. Right. Right. They're the one who can decide to call, fold, or raise first after everyone's looked at their own cards. Interesting. So if you're the dealer, you should almost always raise as the first action, only very occasionally fold and never call. If you're not the dealer, then you should call or raise most often, rarely fold. The interesting thing about this algorithm is it's not completely perfect. It can't be. It won't win every game. Right, because it doesn't always have all the information. What it will do is it will win virtually every time in the long run. Mm -hmm. So eventually it will beat you. So if you're up against it for long enough, eventually you'll lose all your money. Exactly. Now the cool thing is you can actually see what that feels like. (laughs) You can actually play the perfect poker player. Okay. So we'll put a link to uh, the website in the show notes and they have it online. Here's the issue. The website is very, very busy. What you have to remember is this poker player, this computer, is accessing these 11 terabytes of data every time it's playing you. Right. As a result, they only actually allow four people to play every time. Oh my gosh. So I guess this, as this is getting more publicity, it's getting harder and harder to play. Exactly. So they've got a queue where you can wait for those four spots. I tried numerous times in the last week to get into this, and I couldn't even get into the queue. Oh, wow. It's, it's tough. But there's a strategy tool on the website, which you can access and is a lot faster, where you can actually set up an entire poker game. You can uh, set up with the cards on the table, the cards in your hand, and the, uh, the betting and raising structure of the game, what has been bet and what has been raised. And it will tell you the optimal strategy to take. Okay, so now I just need that as an iPhone app so I can win every poker game. Yeah. <laughs> so that is how you play the perfect game of poker, is a lot of practice. And a lot of memory. And a lot of memory. Okay, cool. Thanks, Lucas. Thanks for joining us with our second ever episode of Double Blind. We hope you learned something listening to it. We sure learned a lot making it. Is there a news story with a sciencey spin that you want to learn more about? Send an email to stories at doubleblindscience.com and let us know. We would love to hear from you.